We're in John 12 once again, and today we'll be looking at verses 25 and 26. I want to read those verses by themselves, because by themselves there's a shock factor I want you to feel. Uh, And then we need to look at them, of course, in context and see the connection with what goes before, because uh, I think that's the best way to understand any passage. But here's the shock factor. Listen carefully. These are the words of our Lord. He who loves his life, John 12, 25, will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor Now, seeking to understand these verses by themselves in isolation from the verses around them may cause someone to think that Jesus here is teaching that one can earn eternal life by works. You know, if you did memory verses on a card and you just put these two verses on your memory card and carried that around with you and didn't understand the context, I think for some it would be easy to wonder, wow, i got to live in order to? Now, I hope to show you that, in fact, this is not the case. Jesus nowhere teaches, by our own efforts, we merit eternal life. Verses 25 and 26 obviously come on the heels of verse 24, which comes on the heels of verse 23, which comes on the heels of the verses that precede it. And that's important. Verse 24 is very important. I'll show you the connection in a moment. It's very important to recognize uh, that verses 25 and 26 come right after verse 24, where Jesus uses that earthly analogy about his own work, plants or seeds, grain being put into the dirt and dying and then shells coming off the seed and then sprouts coming through the soil and then out and then fruit being born, you know, that's connected to this statement, I think very important. So last week we looked at verses 20 through 24. I need to go through those real quick to set up uh, the connection of verses 25 and 26. Remember, this is our Lord's last public monologue. Uh, It's going to get narrowed down to to a little more private by the time we get to verse uh, chapter 13, this what we call the upper room discourse where the Lord's giving his final parting words to his disciples only. But now he's in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover um, celebration. And in verses 20 and 21, we read, Now there were certain Greeks. Remember, I made a point about this last week. Very important. There were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I put that up on Twitter on Monday, I think it was. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. He got more likes than any tweet I think I've ever put up. (laughs) Wonderful words. By Gentiles going to a Jew with a Greek name, Philip, and saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip tells Andrew, and then they tell Jesus, verse 22, Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Why they went to Philip, we're not told. Why Philip went to Andrew, we're not told. 
uh, that Philip and Andrew told Jesus, we are told. And our Lord responds in verses 23 and 24, but Jesus answered them saying, now this comes right on the hill of, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip tells Andrew, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus, and then this is what Jesus does in response to them telling him that these Gentiles wanted to see him. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verse 24, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. Those are very important words, and I would like to show you the connection between the verses that we're looking at, verses 25 and 26, or the importance of understanding verses 23 and 24 first in order to understand verses 25 and 26, I think, properly. So listen to verses 23 and 24 again. The hour has come that the, in my notes, next three words are in bold, son of man should be glorified. Mark those words, son of man, that's important. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, these are important words, it produces much grain or it bears much fruit. Some of the the translation have it. And then we have verses 25 and 26. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. Now remember I made a big deal, or at least a little deal, a deal, about those words. Son of man in verse 23. Last week, I reminded you of something some of you already know. Where does that title come from? Well, it comes off the lips of our Lord more than any other uh, title he uses for himself. But it doesn't first come off the lips of our Lord's. It's, Lord. It's actually contained, it's a secret, in the Old Testament, right? Daniel chapter 7. So that's important. Let's listen to these verses from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I was watching in the night visions. Okay, so this is a revelatory vision endowed upon Daniel. And behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, ascension language, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, sir, we wish to see Jesus, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. If anyone serves me, his his dominion is an ever, I know what that means, connection, you just, oh, whoa. That's good. Um, His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So Jesus hears from Philip and Andrew what the Gentiles told them, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And then he says it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Then we're in verse 24. 
He gives an explanatory illustration. That's what I called it last week. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, uh, some of the translations differ a bit, but it's the same truth that's being communicated. It remains alone. But if it dies, see that condition? If it dies, it produces much grain. It bears much fruit. Now, these words come on the heel uh, of our Lord's statement, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, that's why I labeled my point. He gives an explanatory illustration of what it means, at least some of the implications of the Son of Man being glorified. He uses an illustration for it. Now, notice... If it dies, it produces much grain. So what's our Lord's point there? The hour has come for me to produce much grain. The hour has come for me to produce much fruit. Now, we don't want to look at this as a, like a temporal fruit bearing in the first century alone. Because... After he dies, he was buried. After he was buried, he was raised. After he was raised, he revealed himself. After the resurrection and the revelations uh, to the disciples, between the resurrection and the coronation, we have the ascending to the ancient of days, okay? And then we have his session, and it is during the session that most of the fruit that I think he's talking about here is actually born, because that session ends at his coming, at his second coming. So in between those two, where was most of the fruit born? While he was on the earth? After he ascended into heaven. Because even though the Gentiles in the first century could say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus, we're Gentiles way, way far away from where he spoke these words, and we've seen Jesus, we've heard about him. He's revealed himself to us through the word of God and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The hour has come for the Son of Man to produce much grain or bear much fruit. That's his point. Our Lord's earthly ministry of humiliation is coming to an end. It is time for him to be glorified as Son of Man, but first comes his death. Now remember, Daniel's vision of the Son of Man coming up to the Ancient of Days. Listen to these words. Then to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Now what is the fruit of our Lord's exaltation in heaven? That some would serve him. Some in the first century, obviously, But most who serve him come later, right? Second through 20th century are we in? We're in the 20th century. 20th. 21st century, okay? Most people that serve him and have served him through the inter-advental era, okay? The era of history between the two advents of our Lord since he has ascended. Most... We're not in the first century. Most come after. And now they're all over the place. And we are actually 
hopefully trying to help somebody with funding to actually produce documents, translations of scripture, for people that some of them have never had them. Why? He's bearing much fruit, you know? You remember, uh, don't, don't remember that. Anyway, let's look at the verses themselves versus it was Paul in Acts. God says to him, I have many people in this city, in Corinth. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Paul's trying to leave. I have many people in this. There are many people, many people who have not confessed Christ yet, that will confess Christ. They need the word. It's the means God uses to call the elect to the sheep to himself. So let's look at verse 25 and 26 now. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So our Lord says these words, or ones close to them, at other times during his ministry. You've heard these words if you've read the gospel. Just listen to these. Matthew 10, 39. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Similar language. Mark 8, 35 and 36, for whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, and you know the rest, and forfeit his own soul? So these are are sobering words. Taken by itself, these words, this sounds like our efforts earn us eternal life. It sounds like that, doesn't it? It seems as if there is an if-then equation here. If you do this, you will get this, right? Hate your life, you will get this. Do this, receive this. Doesn't it sound like, it sounds that way to me. Um, It seems like life eternal or eternal life depends on Hating's one life, one's life to be earned. How can I know that I go to heaven? I can earn it. I can do certain things. I can jump through certain hoops. I can perform certain acts or actions, and those will merit my entrance into eternal life or heaven. But understood in relation to verses 23 and 24... Could our Lord mean something other than that? He better or else we're in big trouble, right? You see, you might be saying, I didn't come here this morning to hear how how I can earn eternal life by my merits, by my doings. Good, if that's your thinking. Now, let's look through this. First, what does it mean to love your life and lose it? We have to ask that question, right? And we should try to answer it. To love your life means to treat life in this present world as a sinner in a sinful world, as an end in and of itself. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This world is all there is. There's no afterlife. It means to live for the here and now, to throw all your eggs in the basket of living in this present world as if that's all there is. One uh, uh, my helpful friend on my shelf commentator says this, if you live for the passing things of this life, your life will surely pass with them. The things you live for will fade away. Your faculties, your ability to think and reason, will decline, and your idols will leave you to a lost eternity. That's, that's pretty heavy. We might need to do some moving over. 
So this is the way of, of life for those who do not believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, in whom is eternal life for all who believe. Here are the words again. Love, to love your life means to treat life in this present world as an end in itself. Has anybody ever lived that way? In, in this room? Acting as if this is all there is? But notice, what does it mean to hate your life in this world? That's pretty important. And keep it for life eternal. Hate your life. That just doesn't sound right, huh? You need to hate your life. In this world, so that you can keep it for life eternal. So here's my explanation. To hate your life in this world must mean the opposite of loving your life and losing it. It must mean to live in light of another world. If to love your life means to live for this world as an end in and of itself, and that's all there is, To hate your life must be the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. To live in this world but not be of it, you know? To live for that world. To live in light of the hope of eternal life that's conferred on us by the grace of God. So to hate your life in this world must mean the opposite of loving your life and losing it. It must mean to live in light of another world, called by the writer of Hebrews, the world to come, though still living in this world. It must mean to live life here in light of life there. And it must mean that after hating life in this world as a way of life, the end is life eternal, a glorious quality of life unlike life in this world. But here's a question. Why would one hate his own life? Why would one conclude that living this life as an end in itself is a dead-end road? Why would a person conclude, I'm not going to live for things here and now. I'm going to turn my back on that kind of living. I'm going to hate that kind of living and live another way. Why would somebody... It sounds crazy, right? I think the next verse helps us answering those kind of questions. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. Now this verse further explains, I think, the previous one. Note where our Lord uses the word serves. I've accentuated that more than once. What is is this echoing? You know what an echo is. Somebody yells way over there and comes through the sound waves and bounces off maybe a wall and then hits your ear over here. What is the Old Testament echo? It's from Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is saying, listen, listen to me. I'm there implicitly in the words of our Lord, not only when he uses the phrase son of man, but when he talks about people who serve this son of man. It's an echo of Daniel 7. To serve our Lord requires following him to do what he says, to hate your life in this world. And for those who do so, they will, upon their death, be with our Lord in the world of glory. 
Not only that, but those who serve Christ will be honored by the Father. The the promises of the word of God will terminate upon them, and they will actually make it through difficult sessions, seasons of life, and not apostatize, okay, and and come to cold buildings, and then find a warm, snuggly room where everybody's uh, meeting. All by grace, okay? I think this refers to the gift of resurrection on the last day, ultimately, this, my father will honor him. Here's J.C. Ryle. By the way, just so you know, J.C. Ryle was a 19th century bearded Anglican priest. Honor from the men of this world they may not have. Honor from the Father shall make amends for all. See why I like him? That's a good point. The language of serves me is important. Recall Daniel 7 again, where the Son of Man, upon his ascension, is given all people's Nations and languages, languages so, so that they should serve him. So here is the, the incarnate son of God accomplishing his work, ascending to the ancient of days, seating at the right hand of majesty on high. He receives a gift, the gift of all people, people's nations and languages should serve him. This is... Part of the reward for his obedience. The, he gets people. All peoples, nations, and languages are to serve him, come after his ascension, and is based on his finished work on earth. It's not based on their meriting eternal life in and of themselves, is it? It's based on his work is accomplished. And what is the fruit? He gets people from all over the world to serve him. This is the fruit born ultimately by our Lord. Anyone who serves him does so as a result of the work of Christ for them. And we could even say this. Anyone who really serves Christ does it as a result of the work of Christ for them and in them. Because if you know yourself well enough, you know, if I'm serving Christ, it's only because grace is in me. I don't just get up in the morning and go, wow, I'm serving Christ on my own you know, pulling up my bootstraps. I'm biting the bullet and... What do you do with the belt? Tightening my belt and I'm just going to live the Christian life. Get out of my way. I'm holy. Thank you, Sean. Sean says, no. Even hating one's life, reorienting one's life around Christ is fruit in us by virtue of our Lord. We don't want to sit here and say, you know what, I've reoriented my life around Jesus. And if I was younger, I could pat myself on the back. So please, pat, pat me on the back. I've done pretty good with this Christian life thing. You got reoriented. Right? From the inside, then slowly but surely, and oh, it's painful, out. It takes a long time sometimes to reorient our lives. Um, So why would anyone say, I'm not going to live for things here and now? Why would anyone say, I'm going to turn my back on that kind of living? Why would anyone say, I'm going to hate that kind of living and live another way? I'm going to serve Jesus. I'm going to follow him. Why would anybody even say that? Here's the answer. Because they believe his words. They believe what he said about him. They believe they are sinners. And Christ... 
is the only hope for sinners. They believe our Lord was on a mission while on earth, and he accomplished his mission. And his mission isn't completed by virtue of the fact that he left the earth. Once he left the earth, this gift of nations was granted him. And you know what he does over time? He goes and he finds his sheep. You remember in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. He came to save the lost. He came to give his life a ransom for many. His life and death was for others. Forgiveness of sins is found only in him. The righteousness needed to be accepted by God is found in him and him alone. It's not his righteousness plus our righteousness. Why would somebody say, you know what? I'm going to hate life as it is in this world as an end of itself, and I'm going to live a different life. It's totally oriented, well, in theory, totally oriented and centered around Jesus. It's because they realize that he's the only fountain for sin and uncleanness. There's no other way. There's no other way to get guilt, the stain of uh, guilty stains removed. Thank you. He's the only fountain that you can run to foully, dirtily, and be cleansed. And not by virtue of your flying to him, but by virtue of his mercy, grace, and doing for us. He is a priceless treasure of grace and mercy for helpless sinners. We can't put a price tag on him. That's, this is why some people say, you know what? Not doing that anymore. I'm living different. But those people that are rightly educated aren't going to say, and by virtue of the fact that I'm going to live differently, I'm going to live other world-orientedly, when it's all said and done, my good deeds will outweigh my bad, and God will say, you're pretty good. You know, come on in. Believing these gospel truths is the cause of losing one's life in this world. Why does somebody lose their life in this world? Because they believe the gospel. And it just turns everything inside out and upside down. Believing these gospel truths is the cause of serving and following Christ against the odds of this life. Against this present evil age, as Paul calls it. And against the lost world's priorities. Serving and following Christ um, in such a way as to expect return from Christ, that is, eternal life, is not what these kind of people do. We don't get in return for our works eternal life. We don't work to it. We work from it because he worked to it and gives it to us. See, that helps you get motivated, proper motivation. The motivation shouldn't be, you know, looking over your shoulder for the divine hand of slapping you for not being as good as a disciple as you ought to be. The motivation should be, look how terrible I still am, and I still have the promises of God that are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. I think motivation is a huge thing that we sometimes lose, and often because verses like this are taken kind of like little islands all themselves, verses 25 and 26, 
And then the preacher beats over the people's heads. I can, I can beat you into doubting your salvation pretty easily. Right? Okay. Christian disciples should be characterized by a life of prayer. Are you? Depends on what that means, right? I pray every time, almost every time I eat. A lot of times before I eat. Pray without ceasing. Does that mean 24-7? I don't think so. I think it means a continually way of life. Thank you. But it'd be easy to beat, beat you over the head and to convince you that, you know what? You should doubt your salvation. And a matter of fact, you should come back next week, too, and doubt it some more. That'd be a healthy church, huh? Why are you at church? Because I doubt my salvation. We work from the gift of eternal life, not to it. So let's do some contemplation. Our Lord here in verses 25 and 26 describes the type of fruit brought about due to his life and work for sinners. This is fruit language in the lives of his people that benefit from his death. They end up living different than the world by his grace. Not unto his grace, but from his grace. He will have some serve him, and nobody's going to stop him. As Daniel's vision teaches. Now, think about the request of the Gentiles. Sir, we would see Jesus. Given the request of these Gentiles in the context of our Lord's words, in a sense, he says... In light of my glory, some from the various peoples of the earth will believe my words about myself. These will hate their lives in this world. These will serve me. These will, like me, be honored by my Father. So that, if that's all that's true, and I think it is, we, brothers and sisters, are his fruit, the effect of his causation, he is the cause of us being here today, he is the cause and the grounds for us receiving the gift of eternal life from him, because by virtue of his obedience unto death, he was rewarded with this thing we call eternal life, a quality of life better than even Adam's created state. We are his fruit called to hate our lives in this world and serve him. Now, if you know what that means, you go, well, of course. But if you don't know what it means, you're going, what? I got I to hate my life in this world? His kingdom comes first, right? Matthew 6. We are not to give him the leftovers. All true Christians believe that. No, I'm going to give Jesus the leftovers. If I have enough time, I'll do what he says. Nobody, hopefully you don't think that way. Um, But we live that way sometimes. What's that verse, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And yes, the end of Romans 8, Paul goes right to Christ there. 
We are not to give him the leftovers. We are to orient the entirety of our lives around serving him. And if you think about what he's done and what we're asked to do in light of what he's done, it's like, that should be... That's like a no-brainer. That's nothing compared to what he's done. A second observation here, a contemplation would be this. The words of Martin Luther ring true in light of verses 25 and 26. We sing these words, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Some of I'm sure some of you are going, yeah, that's one of my favorite hymns. You remember next time we sing it. We're not going to sing it today. Next time we sing it, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. Hate this life as it is considered as an end in and of itself in this evil age in which we live. I brought this up recently, but remember the scene in Pilgrim's Progress, and it's been so many years since I read it, I could get some of the details wrong. So uh, it's the point here that's most important. Spurgeon read it over a hundred times. He read it at least once every year, more than once, obviously, because he didn't live to be a hundred. So if you read Spurgeon and he gets the story different, trust Spurgeon's story, but the point is the same thing, where Christian sticks his fingers in his ears, remember that? His family, his wife, his family, his neighbors were telling him, don't, don't go on that path, the Christian life. Don't, don't confess Christ. Don't be, be, be a believer in Christ. Uh, you're going to have a lot of trouble in this life if you do that. You're going to have people um, hating you. You're, gonna have, you're not going to get all the goods of this world. Your kindred, your family, they're, it's going to be a problem. You remember what he did? He put his fingers in his ears and he yelled, life, life, eternal life, and he went, Opposite the city of destruction, I guess. Yeah, thank you. He went opposite of the city of destruction. Now, that's a metaphor. That's a, they call it an allegory. One thing stands for another. You know what it stands for? John 12, 25, and 26. That's a good illustration of it. True and saving faith in Christ exhibits itself like this. It goes against the grain of this world's expectations, against this world's idols, True and saving faith sides with Christ instead. It's a no-brainer, right? Are you going to side with Jesus or the world? What's the world have to offer? Now, we don't, we don't say it that way, but that's how temptation comes on. We open ourselves up. Whoa, the world got to offer in competition with Jesus. We know better. Nothing, well, nothing good. Nothing lasting, only temporary misery, ultimately. Those with true faith in Christ serve Christ despite the odds stacked against them. And they do so because, as bad as it might be sometimes, they love him for who he is and what he's done. If you're a true believer, you love Christ. You don't love him like you ought to. But thank God, he loves you how he ought. Okay? Just think if it was the other way around. God loved us only to the degree that we would love, we love him. Oh, my. As, oh, my, as my friend would say. Oh, my, we would be doomed. 
But if you are a true believer, you do love Christ. You don't love Christ as you ought. And your love for Christ isn't the basis of your acceptance in heaven. Just think of the degree, the temperature of our love for Christ would be the grounds upon which God accepts us. I wouldn't be very accepted sometimes at all. So what we should say is, you know what? More love to Christ and for Christ. More love to thee, O Lord. But never allow me to fall into the trap of thinking the temperature of my love, the oomph in my obedience, makes me acceptable to heaven. Only God's work in Christ makes us acceptable to heaven. And when you understand true believers in Christ are a fruit of the glory, part of the glory of Christ, the fruit of his labors, you are just fruit. You're just effect. You didn't cause this eternal life thing to be deposited in your souls. It's a God thing. If he didn't do it, we'd still be in our sins. He did it. We're not in our sins. And so the question is, therefore, you know, how should we live, therefore live? Grateful? Thankful? Remember the catechism? Guilt? Grace? Gratitude. Guilt brings the work of Christ to us. Because we're guilty, he works for us. Grace comes to us as a result of his work for us. Gratitude, our expression of thankfulness, because when we're helpless, when we're enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. Not in order that we could sing, thy works plus mine, O Christ, thy cross plus mine, O Christ, thy pains plus mine, O Christ, thy righteousness plus mine, O Christ, but thy cross and thy cross alone, O Christ. His pains, his righteousness, everything's due to him. Uh, If you are in Christ Jesus... It is his doing. We are fruit. We come as a result of him um, coming into the world, going into the earth, and coming out of it, and sending into heaven, and receiving us as a gift of his, a reward for his labors. That's kind of weird to say. We are gifts of Christ to Christ for him. Um, by virtue of his work. But it is true. In one sense, it is. So we should be very grateful and thankful in light of those things. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Even tough (laughs) texts like this that can easily be distorted into uh, hammers upon our heads to make us, based on uh, wrong motives, to try to earn things that are instead deposited in our account, that are lavished upon us, that are given to us. Eternal life is that gift from heaven to earth, from God to sinners who believe in Christ. Help us work from our uh, salvation. Help us to hate life as an end in itself in this world alone and to love Christ more so that we might serve him 
better. Grant us this help. Bless your word as it's been preached to all the souls, all the people hearing me this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.